Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the American Justice Podcast. We are here with the ladies of Lone Star 187, a wonderful podcast that uh, I have been listening to and have just been absolutely enthralled with and then found out that they are covering the Brandon Woodruff case, the case that we did in our first season. So uh, it's amazing to have these two ladies on and I am super happy to have this special episode for you guys as we uh, get ready to uh, produce, or as we get ready to release this, the next season. I actually just uh, was, <laughs> was recording an episode today. So, uh, so we'll have that out for you guys soon. But uh, so today we're gonna talk about all things Brandon Woodruff. What, what a crazy case. Uh, Carrie, why don't I let you tell everybody kind of um, how you heard about the case and uh, what interested you. And of course, Brittany can jump in anytime. Okay, well, I, I stumbled upon this by, um, I was watching the um, Nightmare Next Door series and I saw there was one called Lone Star, it was Lone Star something. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact name of the episode. But if it's Texas, I record it and then file it away later for story, for content, right? So I watched the episode and then I was like, wow, that's really close by. We've never covered a story in Roy City. In fact, my daughter has friends that live in that city. So um, I you know, watch the episode. And then after I watched the episode, I went to the, to the internet, which I usually do, and just kind of trying to add to the story. And then I was completely shocked by how one-sided that episode was. So it was, um, it was because of the Nightmare Next Door episode. That's awesome. Ultimately. And, you know, I just realized I'm being, I'm being very rude and not asking you guys to first uh, kind of introduce your podcast to everybody, tell everybody uh, what it's about and how you guys came about doing this this type of fun stuff. Well, I'm going to give that to Brittany because <laughs> it was her idea to start this podcast. Um, and initially I kind of blew her off. I was like, yeah, whatever. Because she called me while I was in Target and I was trying to shop for Christmas. Um, yeah, we'll and, she, <laughs> and she didn't give up. So I'll let her explain that. Sure. Um, so me and Carrie love everything true crime. So usually, and our mom too, she feels that. So anytime she sees like murders on TV or on 2020, she's always like, oh, I DVR this, you have to watch it. So it's always been an interest um, for both of us, not just, um, I know for me, it's a lot of the psychological aspect of it, of what drives a person to do something. And then um, also how unfortunately screwed up our justice system is. So just all of that together is just crazy human behavior. So I listen to all the big um, true crime podcasts um, out there. I've listened for years and I never even knew there were true crime podcasts till Carrie told me about some of the ones she listened to. So then I got hooked on them. And one day I'm driving and I was listening to, I don't know, it was like two women doing a podcast. I don't remember the name. And it was like 20 minutes long and they told this story and I had so many questions. <laughs> I was like, well, what happened to this person? And well, what about this? And, you know, like, why didn't this happen? And why didn't that happen? And I'm just so confused. And I saw how famous they were. And I was thinking, if these two women can get this many people to listen to them and not tell a full story with as long-winded as I am <laughs> and as much true crime as we love, 
we would do great. So I did, I called her and she's like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then um, a, a little time passed and we were at lunch with our mom and um, we are from um, Babylon area. And she's like, did I ever tell you girls about the time that uh, my dad and your dad um, went and picked up a bloody carpet from a house in Abilene? And we were like, deer in headlights. We're like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? No, you didn't tell us about this. And we went home. I remember we were eating at Abuelo's Mexican restaurant. <laughs> and we went home and we sat on the computer all day for the rest of that Saturday yep. on newspapers.com. I mean, we wanted to know the ins and outs. And by the end of it, we had the whole story, maybe like nine hours later. And I'm like, see, like we could do this. And this could be like our first story because it's family and involves our family. And so we did it. We researched it, we recorded it, and then we played it on New Year's uh, 2019. New Year's of 2019, we played it for our closest family members and they were hooked and we're like, all right, well, this has to be a thing now. So now here we are two years later, two and a half years later, and it's like our favorite thing to do. That's awesome. Yeah, I I love the... uh... I love the, um, in the intro where you guys say, uh, we're two sisters that love true crime. So we decided to give this shit a shot. <laughs> I was like, that's so glad. That's so awesome. Yeah. That is, and you. I was not, the, the whole reason I got into it was actually because of the Brandon Woodruff case. And, uh, oh. it was almost, it was pretty much demanded. Like I was making this documentary and, uh, we had a screening of one of my rough cuts and, uh, in the theater. And one of the people in the theater was like, why did, why is there not a podcast about this case? And I was like, well, you know, it didn't really, you know, uh, podcasts, you know, they do, they do subjects and they do, you know, ongoing different, different things. And uh, it didn't really seem like a podcast um, type material. And, uh, and then, so I started talking with C. Derek Miller, my writer, and I was like, you know, maybe we should make a podcast just to kind of supplement what we're doing with the documentary. Mm-hmm. And we did, and we started getting into it and, and started realizing that we love doing it and that, you know, I'm the same way as you, Brittany. I've always loved true crime stuff and, you know, doc- mm-hmm. at Dateline has been my, you know, <laughs> my, 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 um, what do you call it? Um, my addiction, I guess, uh, <laughs> since since I was a little kid. I don't know. You're right. It's just one of those things where you just uh, you try to get into the mind of these people and start thinking like, what, what, what makes somebody like Ted Bundy just, you know, go off the deep end, or what makes you know someone like Jeffrey Dahmer like do all mm-hmm. the sick stuff that he's doing? Like, how how does a mm-hmm. human being do that? Um, so then we started. We realized that we we like doing it and. Uh, one of the things that we like doing was focusing on the wrongfully convicted. So that's why mm-hmm. uh, ours is so is is geared towards that. Is you know it's it's frustrating and it's rewarding all at the same time because you're you're bringing awareness to these people's cases, but at the end of the day, you realize they're still in prison. And yeah. you know, so anyway, so that's that's how I got started. So yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting uh, how you guys, and I did. You know, it's funny because I've been listening to your episodes going backwards, and then the other day I was like, why don't I go and start at the beginning <laughs> instead of going backwards? And uh, and I heard that story about your um, your mom telling you about that. That was mm-hmm. like, that was crazy. I was just, yeah, 
Yeah. And I, I will say we've obviously practice makes perfect. So as the years, as the episodes go by, I feel like we get better and better. So starting <laughs> now and going backwards is probably not a bad idea. Because <laughs> well, we learn first- a lot. The first yeah. ones were absolutely fine. So, uh, thank you, thank yeah. you. And, but, but, uh, yes, we do get better with, uh, <clears throat> experience, yep. not age. Right? <laughs> exactly. And All we right. wanted something that kind of like set us apart from other true crime podcasts. So that's why we, we love, we've been in Texas our whole life. We love Texas with it being such a gigantic state. We never have to unfortunately worry about running out of yeah. cases. <laughs> I know that you know it's funny because uh, the Brandon Woodruff case happened in Hunt County, and mm-hmm. uh, I've had so many people tell me, you know, if you wanted to just spend your whole career focusing on cases in Hunt County, you could probably go, you know, go a thirty a good thirty or forty year career just uh, covering this one county, mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah the whole state of texas you'll never run out of uh no. <laughs> never run out of material very very true all right well let's get into uh talking some some brandon woodruff um okay. you know for those of those listeners that don't know you know a why haven't you gone back and listened to the first season uh mm-hmm. but b uh basically brandon woodruff was a 19 year old kid back in 2005 that was accused of and ultimately convicted of killing both of his parents, uh, shooting and stabbing them. And, uh, you know, there's so many th- different avenues of this case that it's just, uh, it's impossible to cover. In fact, the whole reason that we decided to move from a documentary, you know, a 90 or 120 minute documentary to a docu-series it's just because of all the twists and turns in this case. And it's, un, it's, it's absolutely impossible to cover it all in, uh, in an hour and a half or two hours. So, mm-hmm. uh, but that's why we're here to talk about yeah. some of the stuff that yeah. we might have some questions about. Well, let me ask you this just to start off. Did you have any burning questions that you just kind of didn't understand about some of the stuff that you found on the internet or anything like that? Um. I just really don't get why um, nothing, why it, why it's taken this long for there to be that this much exposure to it. Um, I realize that it happened in 2005, so it has been a long time, but um, I just don't, I, I'm, I got to tell you, I'm pretty disappointed. I love Texas, and like Brittany said, I've, we've lived here all of our life, but sometimes you just feel let down, you know, so I'm disappointed, and I just don't understand you know, um, how, how it's gone this long and there's been little to no change. I do, I mean, it's really good. There has been progress with the um, Innocence Project and your documentary, I think brought a lot of um, attention to it. So I think that's been great. But if you hadn't done that, like where, where would he be? He would, there would be no, he would just be stuck, right? So at least now he has hope. So I just don't understand why it's taken so long. Yeah, and that's true. And, you know, it took him almost three and a half, four years to go to trial. So it happened in 2005. The trial wasn't until 2009. Um, so when that happened, you know, there was uh, that that automatically, you know, he's sitting in the county jail at the, at the, the whole time. Even if he was acquitted uh, in 2009, he still would have sat in jail for almost four years for something that he didn't do. Um, but then when he was, um, when he was convicted, the, the family didn't really seem to 
they were not very legal savvy. So they didn't really know what to do. And they listened. Uh, they found an attorney to do a direct appeal. And they listened to those attorneys, unfortunately, who basically just kind of dragged out the, the, the process. You know, they filed the direct appeal pretty quickly. And uh, and then they, uh, that didn't work. So then they suggested that he file to the Texas Supreme Court or the, uh, the, uh, the criminal one, the uh, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. I always get those two mixed up. Um, but then, you know, they suggested that, that they file to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. They did that. And then the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals basically put it on their desk and said, no, we're not going to touch it. We're not going to look at it. So at that point, the family just really didn't know what to do. And that was about, that was like 2011 or 2012. And they just really didn't know what to do. And, and so they, you're right, it just kind of floundered and they just kind of, um, you know, they started looking for other options and other things that they could do. And there's really, you know, not a whole lot that they could do. Then they decided, okay, well, there's this Sixth Amendment issue, this uh, violation of the Sixth Amendment, so let's try to go the federal route. And then, so then they found an attorney to file a writ of habeas corpus to the circuit court and, or to the district court here in Dallas. And then, you know, like I said, the family just wasn't, wasn't uh, aware or I guess what the, getting this case out into the public can do. And yeah. eventually there was a book written about the case it just kind of got to the point where uh, it was stagnated and there was nothing going on. So when I came around and said, hey, let's make this into a documentary, um, that's when everything kind of started getting out into the public. Um, and then the book was written and then that helped things. And, you know, so yeah, it, it's just taken a while. And, it, and unfortunately, the family just didn't have that. Um, yeah. That uh, awareness, I guess, of of what the public can do. Yeah, and you know, we've also had you know the these rise in podcasts and stuff. You know, this kind of medium has only really been going on for like four or five years now. Mm -hmm. That's um, true. So you know, this is so people are starting to realize, hey, we can band together and we can get this information out there and we can uh, help these people. So. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. it's the whole West Memphis three mentality, you know, mm -hmm. they didn't have Eddie Vedder and, you know, all these people bringing awareness to their case, they'd still be sitting in prison as well. That's mm -hmm. a really good comparison. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. That bringing awareness, like you said, and hoping and not even knowing if you're going to be able to make a difference, but just hoping that you can just, right. you just need that one right person to hear the story and who knows where it will go from there. Even the the Luca Magnotti case, right? All the web sleuths, they helped get that guy behind bars. That was a crazy one too. I love, did you, you I'm sure you've seen the Netflix documentary, Don't Fuck yes. Cats. Yes, <laughs> I have. You know what's it's funny really about that one. case? I didn't realize that that was about Lucas Magnata until like halfway through it when they first oh, really? started talking about him. Like when they started talking about this guy that was killing cats and putting it on the internet and all this. I had no idea that it was him. I, you know, I, I just saw it on Netflix one day. I was like, oh, that looks interesting. I'll start watching it. And, uh, and I guess I didn't know enough about his case before the documentary to know that he had done this. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I was, I had to give it to Netflix because like Netflix kept telling me like, 
you would like this. I'm like, why would I like this? Like, I don't think Netflix, I'm really sad. I don't think you know me as well as you think you do. I don't think I'm going to like this. And then one day I'm like, fine, I will watch it. And then the, I was like, I will never doubt you again, Netflix. I'll, yes. I'll never doubt you again. That's you know me too well. <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, yeah, so that's so that's so that was kind of the whole uh, theory of behind getting Brandon's case out into the, into the public. Um, so your guys, so you guys are releasing your episode uh, about Brandon. What day? This Sunday. This Sunday. So it's usually Sunday in Sunday night or early Monday morning. I okay. try to have it ready for uh, Monday morning upload for people's drive to work, um, and it's every other every two weeks. So, um, and this one is mine, so I'll be editing, but I'll get started on the edit the next couple of days and it'll be ready by Sunday. Awesome. So, all right. You hear that everybody? You're going to check out Lone Star 187 this Sunday. And then after, or, you know, even before then you could go and start listening to all the other episodes. Uh, but definitely after you listen to Brandon's episode, go and listen mm -hmm. to the other episodes because yeah. you guys cover some pretty interesting cases. Thank you. I'm really, I'm really glad you think so. It means a lot. Your opinion means a lot. You're, you know, you've got uh, your podcast is great as well. I've listened to it. I even watched some videos online of um, uh, an interview you did that was specific to Brandon's case and you revealed some some stuff that wasn't really in any of the um, well I haven't watched your documentary I don't see that it's available online I know you have screenings <laughs> so yeah, I, I would really like to know uh, when the next screening is I'd love to be there and, and mm -hmm. be able to watch it and get to meet you in person so um, I is the um, innocence project page or your podcast page the best place to get that information Yes. Uh, okay. The, well, the best part would be, or the best way would be to go to freebrandon.org and then yep. uh, get on the newsletter. Um, okay. Definitely send that out. But then, you know, on the Facebook page, I mean, when we have a screening, we, we blast it out everywhere. So okay, good. if you're connected to any of those, you, <laughs> you probably won't miss it. Okay. Um, uh, this is kind of a, a little bit of a secret, but uh, I actually just talked to Richard Ray yesterday and uh, I think we're going to have another one of these screenings in uh, early August. Great. So, Great. Yeah. So we're going to try to do them every three or four months just until we get the docuseries going. And it seems like every time we have one, uh, there's more people and more people because, you know, the people that see it are like, well, I'm coming back again and I'm going to bring, you know, my sister, my brother and yeah. my whole family. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Uh, so last time we had one uh, in May, we sold out the first night completely and had to add a second night. So that's great. That's that really is great. great. And it's right there in the heart of the lion's den in Greenville. So right. Uh, yeah. I would, <laughs> it always cracks me up when we go to Greenville because I'm always like, okay, do I, do I need to hire some bodyguards or <laughs> like what's going on here? But, uh, but anyways, but it's fun. All right, so um, uh, as far as going back to Brandon's actual case, so this, you know, do you have uh, uh, any other like uh, kind of things where things didn't make sense? I know that I think you're talking about the round table. Um, yes. Video that we did with Catherine yeah. and Edie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a really good one. It was really long and we... <laughs> You know, I, I was like, really, the only people that are going to watch this are literally the people that just want to know all of the facts. Yeah, uh, me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> me. 
yeah there's, <laughs> nobody's watching that just for like pure entertainment value because of, you know a bunch of people sitting around talking uh but uh uh but yeah so what uh so i that probably gave you a lot of uh a lot of stuff that you may not be able to access in other other um other podcasts like uh sword and scale when you yep. know and they covered it um true crime garage when they covered it you know all of those are just kind of you know a one hour uh well true crime garage did two episodes on it but you know, even that, you know, I'm just sitting there at the end of it going, they didn't talk about hardly anything. Like there's so See? much, you know. That, that was me that day I was driving. I was like, I could do so much better than this. Yeah, <laughs> I got this. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, but you know, that's it, it, that's their format, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and our format is uh, we delve into a case, like the next case that we're doing that we're about to publish is 10 episodes. And wow. it's 10 episodes on a case that the trial lasted three days. Wow. So, you know, it's like we really get into um, the, the nuts and bolts of these cases and, and drill down to the, the smallest, smallest details. So, um, but yeah, it's just so much in Brandon's case that there's just so many side stories from, you know, the, the shit kickers to yeah. what they're <laughs> and then sister charla and what her role might have been you know that type of thing so and just the whole i mean we spend two episodes in the podcast just on mike etherington's interview you know yeah he he just (laughs) just so much just Uh, things that are said and you're like wait was you know what well what does that mean and you you want more detail but yeah you just can't you just don't know right and i think there's so much of it that's that can take you in so many different different rabbit holes. And I hope that I've done this the story justice. I think it was a little, I think it's gonna be a little over an hour, but I, I started out with the, um, the interpretation that I got from the uh, Nightmare, Nightmare Next Door episode, and then went into how I, I found your documentary and the freebrandon.org website. And the tie in with Richard Ray, which again, I can hear his voice in my head right now. <laughs> I watched him on the news for so many years, I can hear his voice right now. Um, so I thought it was really awesome how, so hopefully that I, I'd say awesome. Hopefully I was able to um, show people that watching one episode of a show doesn't give you everything, right? And you really need to find all the resources possible before you make a judgment on what you think happened because, you know. That's like what makes our dynamic when we do our podcast so good because like this was her story that I I had watched or heard it like I'd heard I remember hearing the name and like I kind of knew a little bit about it but I didn't really know the full story and that's what makes the episodes um better and for us because it's the first time I'm hearing it so I'm like the audience so I can ask a lot of the same questions that you as the audience may be thinking or wondering but also like she did a great job in the beginning portraying how the episode made him look so guilty. And then whenever she went into the actual facts and like the arrest warrant and like actual yep. evidence, I'm like, hold on a second. That is so not the picture that was painted, you know, that you just told me 20 minutes ago. Right. And um, that arrest warrant is a joke, man. It is. And it is like, a when joke. You were, whenever you were, Scott, when you were talking about 
um, how it took him, what, three years for the trial? I'm like, so it takes three years for a trial, but it took you six days to arrest him? Like, how yeah. is that possible? How do you know somebody's guilty in six days with no physical evidence, but then it takes three years for you to try him? Right. Yep. And you no know, one in his take, family like, believed take, it. Like, Darlie Routier, who was arrested in about 10 days, and her trial was in three months. Yeah. And again, no physical evidence. So yeah. it's like, crazy so frustrating yeah. so frustrating yeah the arrest warrant is is one of those things that um i still to this day ask you know i i've asked every attorney that has ever even looked at this case how did they assign how did a judge sign off on this arrest warrant there's no <laughs> there's nothing other than character assassination and innuendo mm -hmm. And, you know, there's nothing that shows that he, and, and even some of the stuff as we show in the podcast, you know, some of the stuff that Ranger Collins put in there, he knew was false. Yep. Mm -hmm. that, you know, like he had, like one of the things that he put in there is, you know, Ranger Sergeant Jeffrey Collins knows that Brandon was in trouble at school and then he was going to be in trouble if he was miss curfew one more time. And then we find out that there's actually evidence that shows that his dad called and, and told them that Brandon wouldn't be back this weekend. And Ranger Collins knew about that. And, and he, it was in his investigative report. But, uh, but yeah, so it's just one of those things that's like, you guys got to be kidding me that mm -hmm. anybody, anybody, let alone a 19-year-old kid could be arrested. Yeah. C. Derek Miller is an author, producer, and gonzo journalist from the conservative community of Greenville, Texas. Sam Cloud Miller is a graphic artist and a liberal civil rights activist from Austin, Texas. Combine those two and what do you have? Magic. Recorded in the Bishop Arts District of Dallas, it's a podcast that is sure to never disappoint. They talk about books, film, music, today's topics, and life in general. Even though they may disagree on the topics from time to time, they'll always kiss and make up. It's a practice that America needs to relearn, don't you think? No filters, no scripts, and no schedule. Catch the Butterflies Make Me Angry podcast on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube. Peace to the peaceful, truth to the masses, hell to the tyrants. Get all the details at cderekmiller.com. All right. So uh, I think you were going to tell us about the Wamsley case. Yes. Oh, yeah. So um, one of the cases we did um, was Rick and Susanna Wamsley. And that was a case where um, the son and his girlfriend and their friend killed their parents. And it reminded me of, the, of this case in a way, just because of the way it was portrayed. And, you know, I've said it before. I say it in almost every one of our episodes that for me, I, I don't, well, both of us, we go by facts and evidence. Like you can tell me what you think all day, but I want you to show me because evidence doesn't lie. And even the best killers have been caught because of one piece of hair or one strand of evidence that they weren't anticipating to be fine, to be found. Right. So in the Rick and Susanna Wamsley case, it's so similar because it's a brother and sister and the sister and the brother both had history of mental, mental disorders um, and it's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of similarities and that happened in Mansfield and this happened in Roy city, which you know, is still Texas, but some ways apart. Um, but 
but it's, it's just interesting how there's a lot of parallels in those cases and how it was handled. I mean, it took them a while to figure out that it was him and they almost had to kind of like really prove that it was him, even though it was pretty obvious to most people when you read, when you hear the case and the evidence that was found, it was pretty obvious that it was him. And then you have Brandon and it's like, you cannot put a square peg in a round hole. And that's what they're doing. They're trying so hard to make him look like a murderer. And there's no substance to their accusations. There's just not. The, the main piece for me that got me more than anything is how they tried to say that he snapped and killed his parents, I believe, because they, they didn't like him being gay and that he was failing school and all these things. But then they also said that he premeditated it. And you can't right. be like you can't make it both. It's one or the other. And neither one hold water. So how is it that like their case just falls apart no matter how they try and portray it and how they try and make it sound like he did it. It just 10 seconds into them trying to explain it. It just falls apart. Yeah. yeah. And that was one of the things about the uh, Lone Star uh, Mysteries case or whatever it's called. Nightmare Next yeah. Door. Uh, I think that was the name of the episode, right? Lone Star Mystery or something. Like I think that. so. Something like that. It definitely had the name Lone Star in it. Yeah. And it, it, the thing that, you know, you're right. They, the prosecution tried to say at first that it was a crime of passion and mm-hmm. just, you know, it was, it was so enraged that he just snapped and, and killed him. But then they turn around and say, oh, by the way, he also planted this, you know, 22 inch sword and this gun. And, you know, he'd been thinking about it for a while. I mean, you know, it just if if that's what it was, if it was Brandon snapping and he would have gone to the closet and got the 38 revolver that was in his dad's closet. Mm-hmm. You know, that would have been like, OK, well, you know what, you guys, I'm, you know, and just run to the closet and come back and shoot him. You're not going to have a, a gun, you know, planted somewhere if you're if this is a crime of passion and, you know, and and then it becomes, well, if it was planned out and that was the whole problem with the prosecution is they never really could get their theory down as to uh, what it was or, or what his motivation was. You know, mm-hmm. um, I refer to it as the shotgun approach. You know, it's like. Mm-hmm. You're going to shoot somebody with accuracy. You're going to shoot them with a handgun. You're going to shoot them with, you know, you shoot in their general direction. You're going to shoot them with a shotgun because the little pellets go everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's basically what what they used with uh, with Brandon. It was like, well, okay, you you believe you don't believe that he was that he killed him because he was failing out of school. Well, did you know that he was gay and his parents weren't didn't like it? Oh, well, you don't believe that. Well, did you know that he was in credit card debt? Oh, well, you don't believe that he would have killed him for that reason? Well, did you know? I mean, it was just like, yeah, it was just, mm-hmm. you know, they never so really could settle on what their version of the of the motive was. And it's, no. it's, it's sad that they, they really targeted him being gay because that, and I say it, I said in our episode, that is why so many people are afraid to tell people who they are because they're categorized as like, being a bad person because of their sexuality when your sexuality is no one's business but yours and your partner's. So I don't really understand how it's sad. I mean, we, we grew up in Texas. We grew up in a conservative home, but our parents love us and has always accepted us no matter what we do in life. And it's sad that there's people out there that still think that it's not okay to be who you are. So 
that's what they used as, oh, well, if he'll lie about being gay, he'll commit a murder. Well, you know what? I might lie to somebody about what I had for breakfast, but that doesn't mean that I'm going <laughs> to kill somebody, <laughs> you know, or I'll lie yeah. to my about if I have candy in the house, but that doesn't mean I'll kill someone, you know? Right. Yeah. It was very flimsy at best. That that was one of the biggest things that they kept throwing around in the episode. Well, if you're going to lie about being gay, then you're going to lie about killing your parents. Or if you, you know, because the killer um, felt comfortable enough to go, in, to go into the bathroom and clean themselves off, that automatically means that they were comfortable with the house. I, I don't, I think that's bullshit. Just right. because if I'm a killer and I go in and I'm a mess, I don't really care how comfortable I am. I'm going to go clean up so that when I leave, it's not obvious what I just did. It doesn't mean that they were comfortable or anything. It just means they did what they did and they went and cleaned up. That's all that means. There's no, nothing else to read into that. I don't think so. Right. Um, I, I was just, it's so flimsy. <laughs> it is so yeah, flimsy. Yeah. Plus the fact that there's evidence that somebody was in the house cleaning up you know, within 12 or 14 hours of the bodies being found. And, Which is crazy. You know, like I didn't hear that until that, that um, round table that you were referring to. So, so that means that when the police got there, they don't, they didn't really find the house in the true state that it was left in by the killer. Correct. Right. So yeah. just because the house was locked up doesn't necessarily mean that it was somebody in the family. Right. <laughs> Someone and, else went to clean up. Right. And the thing is that the bathroom was so clean that they did not find one drop of blood and, you know, and not even a trace, not, you know, a lot of times people that drip blood all over the place, they'll sit there and smear it and kind of try to clean it up because uh, they're in a hurry and they won't really, it'll be, it'll be clean to the naked eye. But then when they do the luminol and they you yeah. know, take actual, <laughs> actual samples, Oh, lo and behold, there's still DNA there. So how do you have blood dripping all the way to the bathroom? And then magically at the threshold of the bathroom, it just stops dripping. And, you know, the, and plus, you know, if, if this was a really bloody murder scene mm -hmm. and if Brandon would have done it, he would have blood spatter, uh, especially from stabbing him 15 times, he would have blood dripping all over his clothes. You know, mm -hmm. there's just no way that the killer did not get blood in that bathroom. Mm -hmm. And then so so if we use if we take that as a truism that we accept that there had to be blood in the bathroom, the question becomes, how much time does it take to clean up a bathroom so well that when they do a DNA swab, they find nothing? And, you know, to me that, you know, like I said, you have the, you have, you, we've all heard of those stories where the killer uh, tried to clean it up and maybe they used soap and water and, you know, they couldn't really see anything. So, you know, they were in a hurry, so they cleaned it up and they couldn't see anything. So they, and then the police go back and take swabs and no, oh, no, there's still, you know, traces of DNA yep. here. Mm -hmm. So how long does it take for someone to clean up a bathroom? so well that they actually don't find any blood like they completely bleached it to to death to me it takes you know hours yeah, at, at least an hour depending on I mean, how big the bathroom is right right so and, yeah and brandon had no time to to do any of that you know so mm -hmm. he had 14 minutes completely 
to commit the crime and clean up and drive. I mean, it was just like. And think about all the driving he had to do, right? Because they said that he left Heath, went to pick up a friend. Wasn't the friend in Denton? Uh, they, he was in Denton, but they met halfway. Okay, they so that's halfway. Denton. And then Dallas, right? Mm -hmm. So that from, from Heath to Dallas is probably at least an hour. Halfway to Denton, let's say that's another 30 minutes. So that's an hour and a half right there of just driving. But yeah. then he still has enough time to go to the bar, stay there until close, right? And then go back to his uh, dorm, right? Yeah. Well, we so, have, and one of the things you'll see when you come to the, uh, the screening is that we actually take all, literally every single call, every single, anything we know where anybody was, we put it on a timeline and that's when we come up with the, okay, there's in the, in the prosecution's best case scenario, there's 14 minutes where Brandon was quote unquote unaccounted for. And that's the best case scenario. There's, there's other scenarios where Brandon had negative time. He didn't even have time to commit this. Uh, you know, but we're, we're doing things like we're taking uh, the prosecutor's word for it, saying that it only takes 23 minutes to drive from Roy City to Heath. Well, okay, we'll, we'll accept that, uh, even though it probably does take a little bit more if you're not, you know, driving like a madman. And um, so, but even, like I said, even in the, even in their best case scenarios, 14 minutes and for somebody to that, it, you know, 19 year old kid to shoot and stab both of his parents. Um, what was the, it was 14 stab wounds and nine shots. Um, you know, and then go to the bathroom, change clothes, uh, take a shower, change into new clothes, clean up the bathroom, go to the, you know, clean off the murder. I mean, all this stuff that he would have had to have done is just absolutely impossible. And not get any of it in his bag because he's yeah. from, he's coming from school. So it's not like he has a closet to go get more clothes in. Right. So whatever clothes he has with him is all he has. Right. So you're telling me he's able to reach into a bag and not get any blood anywhere in that bag or on the clothes or, you know, on his wallet or his keys or under, I mean, somewhere, right. something, you know, and it doesn't in that 14 minutes, if the snapped version is what we're going to go with, <laughs> you don't snap in 20 seconds. You have to lead up to a conversation. It has to get so heated that you then want to, and, kill your parents right so let's say five minutes of discussion gets him irate okay well that's nine minutes that you have to shoot them realize what you've done and then clean up right it's not like he and like didn't they order pizza so like he's gonna eat pizza with him right so he's like eating and shooting at the same time like how does that work <laughs> yeah like he's well, clean it's not happening <laughs> you know a little pizza and murder you know yeah, uh, right <laughs> And don't forget you use the gun that you stole from your friend's house, right? your girlfriend's parents' house. That's the gun you use. You don't go and use the gun that is at your parents where you're at right now with your parents. Right. Use the stolen gun from your girlfriend's house. Right. Because, you know, you're going to get away with it that way, right? Yeah. And that's another thing talking about the arrest affidavit that, you know, Ranger Collins knew that many other people had access to this gun. You know, he knew that it was sitting on a shelf. He knew that the Etheringtons had been, or Mike Etherington had been there 
uh, a week or two prior, unsupervised. Like he knew all of this stuff, yet he puts in the arrest affidavit that we one of the reasons we believe Brandon committed this crime is because he had access to a gun. Who in Texas doesn't have access to a gun? Amen. <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you don't have one personally, it's not that hard to get one. Yeah. No, no, it's not that hard to get one. Right. I have a gun myself and literally a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago was like, hey, can I borrow your gun to go to the range? And I was like, sure, no problem. <laughs> I was like, man, it's a good thing I've known this guy for 20 years. So right. you know, I might come back with a, with a murder on it. It's a good thing he's trustworthy. Yeah. Right, exactly. Well, and what did anything come of? Um, did they investigate? I remember in the Sword and Scale episode hearing that there were people, I guess, because the um, the Woodruffs had just recently moved and bought that land. There was somebody else that wanted that land. And even um, Mr. Woodruff was concerned about his safety and wanted that rifle there, wanted that gun there because they outbid somebody for that land and they weren't happy about it. Did they, is there any, I mean, I couldn't find or hear anything else further about that investigation. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, they, uh, so Ranger Collins never truly looked at anyone else. Um, you know, there was a little bit of investigation that went on because uh, there was a report uh, and this was all after any of this investigation I'm about to talk about was all after Brandon was arrested. Of course, because he was arrested six days later, which is right. It just blows my mind. Like I can't even make a really, really big decision in six days. <laughs> like, like if I'm gonna buy a car, like oh, I know. I think be longer than six days, but it took them six days to convict a boy of murder right. with no evidence. Right, or arrest him, anyways. But yeah, yeah, yeah. He's um, arrested. Yeah, it took four years to convict him. Yep. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, uh, but you know, there was a report that, uh, that the, that Dennis's, uh, debit card had been used. And this was about two weeks after the murders. And so Ranger Collins, you know, he's like, well, I'm sure he's shitting his pants because he realized that, uh, you know, his star suspect is in jail. So who's using this debit card? <laughs> Um, but it, it turned out to be an innocent explanation that Dennis had actually used it the week, be, the week before he died and the, uh, company of the restaurant didn't, their internet wasn't working or their, or the machine wasn't working or something. And they ended up settling the batch like two weeks later. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah. So, but I'm sure that he's sitting there thinking, oh my God, who's using oh, this, no. you know, debit card of this dead person while my suspect <laughs> in jail um but that but that's pretty much really the only ex the only investigation that was done other than uh what was focused towards brandon um the uh i believe it was brandon's aunt kathy latch who told ranger collins about this uh land dispute um but no it was never it was never followed up on and it was i i really i lean towards that just because of how inhumane they were and how brutal they were killed usually um in the cases we've researched and all my many hours of true crime watching usually when it's somebody that cares about the person even if they kill them you know they'll like put a blanket on them or like they'll cover them because they don't want to see what they've done they'll cover their face um or they'll do it in a less barbaric way but it's just so brutal 
that it seems to be completely impersonal. I mean, I understand they said that there's no signs of forced entry, all the doors are locked from the inside, but it just seems so impersonal the way they were killed that I feel like it's a rage killing. And right. it would make sense that these people, if they were upset about like, oh, you took my land, well, now it's been, now, now you can't live in it, so I'm going to completely kill you, like whatever. And then <laughs> like, no big deal. And then they may have felt comfortable to clean up there. Maybe they clean up because they knew, oh, their kids are at college. They're not going to come back. I have plenty of time. They live here by themselves. I mean, I remember in the Sword and Scale, they said that the coffee table was a cardboard box. Yeah. So it's not like they were there that long. Right. Yeah. To That's... make enough enemies. So a couple, a couple of things about that. Um, the, the, the door being locked is is one of those kind of hot button issues that uh um that comes up because ranger collins uses that you know in his investigation and when he tells brandon you know there was no forced entry it wasn't a robbery and you know that doesn't necessarily make sense because um the door was locked from the inside with one of those little twist locks you know, there was a deadbolt on that door and the deadbolt was not locked. It was only the twist lock. Um, mm -hmm. So anybody that that was in that house would be able to lock up the house just by twisting it and shutting oh. the door. Um, so, you know, so that's one of those things that it's like, and, and the no forced entry, you know, it leans towards somebody um, that knew them, of course. And I, and I acknowledge that in the podcast that it leans towards, you know, somebody that knew them. It doesn't necessarily mean it's your son or your daughter or whatever, but it definitely leans towards it's somebody that you knew. But we also have to remember that this is, you know, East Texas, you know, somebody comes knocking on your door, you're just going to open the door and say, what do you want? Who are you? What do you want? You know, or, you know, what, some lady has a plate of cookies and she's like, oh, you're new to the neighborhood. I came in to meet my new neighbors. Right, right. That you stole the land that we wanted. So now we're going to I'm going to shoot you. I'm going <laughs> to yep, take the cookies back with me and lock the door on the way out. Right. You know, uh, like there's so, it just, yeah. there's so many scenarios there. I always hate when I listen to them and they're like, there was no signs of forced entry and nothing was stolen. I'm like, yeah. so you're telling me the dead people told you that nothing was stolen? <laughs> that, <laughs> like, that's always been my thing too. It's like, how do you know How it's you stolen know? if it's not there? Exactly. Do you have an itemized list of what's in the house before you walk in? Right. So you already have a preconceived <laughs> idea of what's there? Right. I, I, don't know. Get it. I mean, I know sometimes it's obvious like, oh, well, the TV was ripped off the wall or right. the car yeah. was. Missing. Well, that's obvious. But how do you know they hadn't gone to the ATM or pulled money out and there was cash sitting on the bar and it was taken or you know, they had a jewelry that was taken. You don't know, like, I can't even tell you what's in my house. If it's somebody broke in, I wouldn't tell you if something was missing till I went looking for it. Right. Yeah. Oh, I can't tell you. I, I actually, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I actually had someone break into my house and steal some stuff one time. And, uh, and I reported everything I had thought of to the police for months afterwards. I would act, I'd think to myself, oh man, I need to get this. And then I go look and I'm like, that was stolen too. <laughs> See? <laughs> so, you know, yeah. So that it always it always drives me nuts when they say nothing was stolen. You don't yeah. know that nothing was you don't stolen. Know. And did, did I hear or maybe I misheard that there was items taken, like a laptop was missing from the house? Well, that brings me into the next subject that I was going to talk about. 
because we, as the uh, investigative people that have been looking into this case for a while, we always try to look at other scenarios. And one of the scenarios that we've always looked at has been the land dispute and that type of thing. And as we think about it and we think, okay, that's a possibility, we always get drawn back to Mike Etherington and how crazy and bizarre his interview was. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he mentions that just absolutely cemented it for me was he's talking to Ranger Collins and he says, you know, the crazy thing is now that the computer's missing. Ranger Collins looks back at him and says, what, what, what do you mean? What, what computer's missing? And of course, Mike, I think realized what he just said and kind of started backtracking. You can see it in the, he's like, well, I mean, it's uh, the, um, you know, the, some people are saying the computer's missing. It's so, it's so crazy. It's just the trickiest thing now that his computer's missing. Well, how do you know his computer's missing? Well, there's, everybody said that, have you not heard that somebody had the computer, his friends, everybody, he's not, nothing to do with his computer's gone. What's that? Who's, who's saying that? My mom had told me that his computer's gone, like, because she said that she, she said that she needed to tell y'all to get that computer. And it, and my question is, who in the world knows that there's a computer missing from a capital murder crime scene when the police don't know that there's a computer missing. The family doesn't know that there's a computer missing. Nobody knows that there's a computer missing from this capital murder crime scene, except for you. And his mother knew it was a murder before anybody else knew it was a murder. Right, exactly. And yeah, I mean, if, if he's trying to cover or protect himself for something, I think at this point, it's better to just come clean with it, whatever it is. Um, so that if, if, if Brandon is guilty, we just need to see that because right now we don't see that, right? Just like we said, we're, we're going by the evidence and there are so many discrepancies between the, the, the arrest warrant and the, the episode, like they said that the friend that went to go check, do the welfare check because they were closer there was a window open and they climbed through, but then the, there something else I watched said that he actually had to get some kind of knife or something and, and then break the window open. Yeah. So like, what, what, what is it? Was the window open or was it not open? And right. I mean, I guess at this point you can't really trust anything that the arrest warrant says because there's so much fabrication in there that it's almost impossible to find the truth. Right. So like you said, you just have to start over, right? You just have to start from scratch, just like they do on all the cold cases. They start over so many times that it finally something jumps out or you get lucky and you get a break and or, or somebody decides to be honest or yeah. thinks that whatever it is they know isn't relevant, right? So it's, it's just, right. it's so inconsistent. That's exactly right. And like I said, you know, the reason that we keep going back to Um, that we believe that Mike was involved in the crime is that, you know, just some of the stuff that he says in that interview is just so bizarre and it's so provably false. It's like, what motivation do you have to be lying to this Texas Ranger about things that happened? And we cannot think of any motivation other than you're just trying to cover up your own tracks. But it's like, you kind of did this to yourself. 
Because yep. you would have just stayed away and not called the police and said, hey, you need to look at Brandon um, and, and not, you know, come in and said all these lies on camera. If you would have just stayed back and you were just another friend of Brandon's that they were just coming around to interview, whatever, that would have totally taken the, the uh, spotlight away from him. But yeah. the fact that he calls and says, hey, I have information. Uh, Brandon's leading this alternate life. He said he hated his parents. He put all this stuff online. Like you start, you call up and you start lying about it. like you're inserting yourself into the case. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and so he has nobody to blame for this finger being pointed at him other than himself. So does he have an alibi for that night? <laughs> <laughs> well that that brings up another one of the issues is that he told ranger collins that he was at home in bed asleep with, with his at night that well <laughs> yes at his mom's house <laughs> but i don't See, know about with his mom but <laughs> in my head i envisioned like when you were talking about like how could somebody clean a bathroom so good and i'm thinking well if any if i had that i'd be like mom yep because my mom can get a stain out of anything. That's factual <laughs> she, right there. She does have her own janitorial business, but she can clean like no one's business. Yeah. So when you ask me, how is it possible that a bathroom could be so spotless? Well, if a mother's trying to cover for her son or a child for that matter, I could see them vigorously cleaning to the point that there is nothing left. Yeah. Well, I mean, and obviously I can't uh, uh, make this, a this is fine. I can't make a position for the podcast, but I can tell you what I believe. Luckily, we still have a First Amendment, and I can say right. what I believe all day long. Yeah. And I believe that Mike and his mom were both there and both killed Dennis and Norma. And what their reasoning, do you well, think? Oh, there was all kinds of, uh, of motive out there. Um, they had been having uh, issues with some of uh, the... Uh, what do you call it? Scholarship money. Uh, Brandon and Mike had been competing head to head at the FFA and uh, all these state fair things. And, um, you know, Mike kept getting, kept losing to Brandon for all the scholarship money for uh, college. There was a beef between Norma uh, Etherington and Norma Woodruff uh, about uh, Norma was, Norma Etherington was being kicked off of the, um, was being kicked off of the board. Uh, so they had bad blood. I mean, there was all kinds of things that, that were going on. Um, but, uh, but the fact that Norma Woodruff had some long blonde hairs in her hand, in her defensive hand, mm -hmm. uh, and they were never tested, the only person in this whole case that has any relevance to the case. Now, does it mean it could be anyone else in the world? No, of course it could be. But the only person that had any connection or relevance to this case that had long blonde hair was Norma Etherington. And so that, you know, it, it's just, there were just so many things um, that if a proper investigation was done, I think it would have pointed to someone else. Are the hairs in evidence? to be tested at some point in the future. I'm sorry, I don't need to laugh. It's just like every time that someone asks, it, it, it's like 
a question that you ask is like one of those things where it's like the police screwed up so bad that it's not even funny, you know? Um, but yes, they took the hairs and they mixed them with all of Norma's hair. Uh, so Norma, you know, she, her left hand dried blood uh, was behind her head. So yeah, when they pulled her, yeah, yeah. So when they pulled her hand out, it had all of her own hairs in it. And then they took the few strands of blonde hair that were in her right hand and they mixed them with all of the hairs that were in her left hand. I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? Like why <laughs> preserve the evidence? Let's just like Let's mix, just mix it, it all, all up. Yeah. up like maybe add some of um, Dennis's hair in there too. Right, you know, you never know. I mean, there's some, lint some on dog the hair in there. Yeah, rub it in the carpet. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> make it an interesting pile of, why not? Right, right. So yeah, so that's what happened with that. And you know, they can go in and they can test the hairs, uh, but they have to pay thirty five. The uh, Brandon's family has to pay thirty five hundred dollars per hair, and there's probably two or three hundred hairs in in that bag. So, uh, so yes, the answer is the the hair is in evidence, but the okay. the problem is nobody has the millions of dollars to go in and test every single hair, and the and the the testing the judge will not allow the defense to go in there and just you know lay them all out on the table and say okay we want this one tested uh if you pay the thirty five hundred dollars they will go in they will themselves grab a hair and test it and that's it that you have no say whatsoever it could, and it could be norma woodruff's hair yeah there's yeah. a three so out of frustrating there's a three there's a well two hundred and a 200 out of 203 chance that it's Norma's hair, Norma Woodruff's hair. So, but anyways, yeah. So there's, there's just all kinds of, of things about this case that, uh, that, you know, point to other people. And, and if they would have done a proper investigation, they definitely would have come up with a different sub, uh, suspect, yeah. but um, you know, and, and I don't know that there's enough proof to, to prove, to really prove beyond any reasonable doubt that anybody did this crime, you know, we'll never know because they didn't do a proper investigation. So. No, but what we do know is we know, at least I know without a reasonable doubt that he didn't do it. Right. There's not, that there is not enough information and hard, real, factual, not hearsay evidence right. that tells me that he did it because, you know, every case we do. There's always a motive. Right. People do things for a reason. People right. just don't like what is um, Reese Witherspoon saying legally bond? Happy people just don't kill their husbands, right? Happy people <laughs> just don't kill their like people just don't kill people. Right. And we did the case, um, um, uh, the case, the it's case of Tadea Benz. She was a nun that was raped and murdered in Amarillo, and um, the guy that was charged with her crime. Um, was a little bit slow and he lived down the street and same kind of situation because he was slow. His family had no money. They ended up pinning it on him. He goes to, he goes to jail. He goes to trial. He gets convicted. He, we kill him. Texas kills him. And years later, they find out that it wasn't him. And it's, it's so it's crazy to me how I understand that these detectives and policemen, I mean, I, I give it to them that they sacrifice their life every day to protect us. And these detectives work days in, days out without their family, trying to solve situations. 
but sometimes I feel like they're so either overworked or they just want to close a case that they will just do whatever they need to, to close it and move on to the next one. Or if it's so horrific that the, that the community is in such uproar to solve the case that they just solve it. But those are people, I mean, Brandon is a person. He was only 19. He has his whole life ahead of him. And not to mention he has a family and he lost his parents. And then now he has to deal with this. And now his family lost his parents and now they have to deal with maybe never getting him out of prison. I mean, $3,500, who has that kind of money for for 203 hairs you would need tested? Who has that money? Right. I mean, I have all the love and everything for my family, but I don't have the money to, I I don't have it. You know, like, what do you do? Especially when it's something that the state should have done in the first place. Agreed. I think that's the travesty right there. Is that truly believe that this guy is your guy then you have no problem testing it because it's going to prove that he did it. But, you know, they, I think they realized that uh, Brandon's hair was about an inch and a half long at the time and was dyed black. Uh, mm-hmm. So they knew that it wasn't him. So I think they just didn't want to know the answer. Yeah. Because so. then yeah. it was like they were wrong. Yeah, they didn't want to be wrong. Right. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I, I believe he didn't do it because... I've not seen any evidence to show me that he did. If he did it, you've got to prove it to me. And so far, I'm not convinced at all. It's it's all circumstantial. And um, his lifestyle was, they used that to make him out to be this person, this evil person that snapped and was in the closet and hiding and, and trying to, and, and yes, he did lie about some stuff, but he was trying to protect himself, right? He knew, he knew his surroundings and his friends and who they were and what they thought. And he was afraid to be honest with him about his lifestyle and what was going on. Yeah. And um, I mean, considering where he lived, I think he had every right to be afraid, you know, mm-hmm. middle of the Bible belt, right? Isn't there a church like every 300 feet? Yep. Yep. So, As, uh, I mean, Catherine he was Ferguson just to... says you cannot throw a rock in Greenville without hitting a church. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's where I got that from. Yes. Yeah. I love so, her. I mean, he, that doesn't mean that he committed this horrific crime. I, I believe that he's innocent until something else until there's hard evidence that he did it so and i understand like he lied about his lifestyle and there are crimes like take lacey peterson case where scott had a complete affair and lied to her about it there's a difference between living a lie and lying to people day after day after day about where you are what you're doing who you are and in your life and you protecting yourself because even he said he didn't know if he was gay or not he didn't know he was experimenting. So why is he going to go around and cause a bunch of ruckus? Can you explain the ruckus? <laughs> um, why would he cause For all those that? Non-Texan <laughs> viewers, uh, ruckus. <laughs> um, if uh, if he wasn't for sure, why would he cause that or or make that statement if he wasn't sure himself? Right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And and you know, for them to yeah, for them to demonize that and you know, use something that from every gay person I've ever talked to in my entire life, they say that this whole not knowing who you are and not telling certain people and all, it's the perfectly natural thing that they do. It's the process that every single one of them goes through. So, all right, well, guys, I want to wrap it up here. And I really appreciate you guys coming on uh, and, and talking Brandon Woodruff. And I definitely appreciate you covering his case. And uh, everybody, make sure that you check out Lone Star 187. 
anywhere you get your podcasts. It is very entertaining and you Thank will you. definitely uh, enjoy your time with them in your car or your house or computer or wherever you're listening. So thank you so much, Scott. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Yes. Thank you guys for coming on. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk again. Well, let's not, let's okay. not let this be the last time. I agree. I like, it. I think we should meet again. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.